I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A teenage girl's murder rocks a small Texas town, but during the trial, it's her assailant who finds favor with the court. This is the Betty Williams story. Evening, Megan. It's a little later than usual. (laughs) Well, your version of late is like post two o'clock. So, okay. In that case, good evening. (laughs) It's close to your bedtime. (laughs) Anyway, regardless, hopefully I can try to keep it together at this late hour. I'll try my hardest. Yes. At this late hour of three o'clock. Please do. No, but this episode will definitely keep me on my toes because actually this is one of those episodes, Megan, you know, this has happened to me a few times where I'm writing an episode And then another episode kind of comes across my desk, so to speak, and I pivot. So I was writing a different story for this recording. And then one of my students wrote me, actually one of my current students in my intro to crime and criminology class, shout out to Alyssa. She is awesome. And I did not even know she listens to the podcast, but she wrote me and she was like, hey, I'm a big fan of your podcast. And I came across this case. You should look into it. And Megan, this is an older case. It's from the 1960s. Never heard of it. Yeah, so I was surprised that one of my youngster students recommended it because usually they don't know the older cases. But, you know, I gave this case a little look. She gave me a little information about it. And once I started reading, I was absolutely hooked. And although it is a bit older, so many of the themes that we will discuss are so relevant to today, such as mental health, gender discrimination, and many other themes you'll see. Okay. All right, so let's get started with today's case. Betty was born on August 11th, 1943, as Elizabeth Jean Williams. She was the oldest of four children, and her family lived in the blue-collar town of Odessa, Texas. Now, they did struggle financially. Her father, John, often had difficulty finding gainful employment, so he would jump around between a few different jobs, uh, mostly working as a carpenter. And then you would have her mother, Mary, who worked as a clerk at JCPenney, which was a local department store. You know JCPenney, right? I think they're still around. There's one in my town. Some sources say that while Mary 
did work. Her husband did not like that she worked because he had kind of the old school mentality of, you know, the man should go to work and the woman should stay home and care for the house and the children. Now, Betty's upbringing was very strict and religious. Her father was a zealous Baptist, and he often felt that Betty was disobedient and sinful. Now, he would blame Betty anytime something bad happened to anyone in the family. So I'm talking about little things like someone got the flu or someone broke a leg. He always said that this was a sign that they were being punished for Betty's sinful nature. And he would constantly pray over her for God to help change her behavior. Ouch. Yeah. Not surprisingly, Betty never adopted her father's beliefs. And in general, she kind of just marched to the beat of her own drum. She would read a lot. She was very into poetry. She had very strong opinions, particularly on social justice issues, such as racism and poverty. Now, recall, we're talking about early 60s, late 50s. So, you know, these were incredibly polarizing topics for a teenage girl to be concerned with. But she spoke openly about her beliefs, and she believed that segregation was unjust and that African-Americans should not have to attend separate high schools as they did at this time. Good for her. Yeah. I mean, she had firsthand experience because she was living in a segregated town where students had their own schools. And she was one of the few people that was saying like, hey, what's going on here? This is not right. And I'm not certain, but I would imagine that her parents did not share these views just based on what we're setting up here. Right. So Betty was very outspoken and she liked to get a rise out of people. But as much as she enjoyed a good fight, she also reported that she felt misunderstood. In a letter that she wrote to a classmate her senior year, she wrote, quote, Most people do not understand me. There are people willing to be my friends, but mostly they are either too ignorant to understand why I'm like I am and consequently offer my mind no challenge, or they haven't the wits to match mine. Now, you can see she's a prolific writer. She really is. These are like notes she was passing to her friends in school her senior year. My notes would not have sounded that polished. Not at all. So she was proud of her uniqueness, but like most teens, she did want to be accepted by her peers and she wanted to fit in. But unfortunately, she was not with the what they would consider the in crowd. Many of her female classmates disliked her. They thought she was a flirt and she had a reputation for being open to sexual experiences. She would often sneak out of her house at night to hang out at the local drive-in theater where she would secretly hook up with boys from town, many of whom had girlfriends. So word would get around and she was developing this reputation. And again, this is the late 50s, so the whole free love movement hadn't started yet. And girls and women who were sexually free were often socially ostracized and looked down upon. Right. So I think Betty, you know, based on what we know about her, I think she would have fared better about a decade later. Betty's case wasn't helped by the fact that her peers perceived her clothing and her makeup choices to also be provocative, which would only add to the stigma that she was promiscuous and therefore problematic. But while she had trouble fitting into her small town, Betty dreamed big. She was quite a good actress, and she was getting leads in her school plays starting her sophomore year in high school. So she was very involved in the school's drama program, And she had big dreams of making it to Broadway one day to become a professional stage actress. You know, she was realistic. She knew that this would be very difficult because her parents simply did not have a way of financially supporting her dreams. So she knew that this was something that she would have to work towards. There was also another bright spot on Betty's horizon. In the summer of 1960, right before her senior year, Betty's good friend, a popular football player named Mac Herring, asked her to be his girlfriend. Now, the two had become friends a few years earlier, even though he was considered 
what you would say is much cooler than her. He was a popular football player. All the girls loved him. And she was kind of a quirky outsider. But Mac liked her. I mean, Mac thought she was interesting. She had a lot to say. And she fell very quick for him. You know, she says that he was a good listener. He was sensitive. And he was a smart boy. So I think she liked the fact that he seemed like a popular kid, a football player. But then he was also sensitive and smart. So she was really attracted to that. And everyone loved Mac. Students and teachers alike revered him. He was tall, handsome, overall, you know, he, I picture, you know, like all those movies, like, um, what's that actor's name? Who's always, like Freddie Prince Jr. is like the football player. Everyone loves him. He's good looking. He's nice. You know, talking about like all those like 90s movies. I was actually thinking of 80s movies. I was going back earlier. Oh. Jake Ryan in um, 16 Candles. Yes. That's the one okay. I pictured. Okay. That's a, that's exactly what it was. Is He was like the big man. You know, he was the big guy in high school. And he came from a much more financially stable family as compared to Betty. They were considered middle class, maybe even upper middle class. And he was also an avid hunter. And as I mentioned, he was a star football player. While Betty was ecstatic about the relationship, and she told many people that she was in love pretty much right after they started dating, Mac unfortunately kept their relationship quiet. He never took her to parties, he never introduced her to his family, and he never gave her his letter jacket to wear. A lot of our listeners are very young. Do you want to explain what wearing one's letter jacket means? Yeah, it's like a proclamation that that is your girlfriend. It's like considered, it was considered quite serious. It was similar to a boy at that time giving a girl his ring. Yep. Mm -hmm. That was kind of a thing before that, too. But it was, you know, it was a public declaration of a relationship. Yeah. And that that meant a lot to people. Oh, yeah. Because it showed that that person was proud to be with you, that they wanted everybody to know. So as anyone would be, Betty got upset by this. You know, she was in love with Mac and she wanted to have the kind of high school relationship that other girls in her school were having. So she decided that she would try to make Mac jealous and To do this, Betty hooked up with one of Mac's football buddies. But as one could imagine, this tactic backfired hard. And when Mac found out, he didn't get jealous. He got angry and broke up with her. Betty took this breakup quite hard. She wrote to a friend at the time, quote, I've never been so humiliated and torn to pieces as I am now. I feel so lonely and deserted. I don't care what happens now or ever. This is pure hell. Now, I'm sure most of our listeners can relate to that feeling of being a teenager and, you know, being broken up with and not realizing that this is such a small blip in the, in your life trajectory. It means the world at the time. Like, as I was reading this, I was putting myself in her situation and it's a big deal. It is a big deal. And it's I, you wish you could tell your younger self now. That it won't be, but of course, I understand the seriousness of it and went through it myself. After being dumped by Mac, Betty began having trouble with other students as well. Now, remember I said she was already kind of on the outs with students. They didn't, they felt that she was promiscuous. Well, word had gotten around about the hookup she'd had with Mac's friend, as well as other experiences that she was having at the drive-in theater. But now it's escalating a bit. Her classmates began saying degrading comments to her in the hallways And, you know, kind of started harassing her. And behavior like this was pretty much commonplace at the time. You know, today this would be considered unacceptable, right? Bullying is not tolerated today like it once was. Even growing up, there was, you know, I saw bullying all the time in my high school. I don't think you see that the way you saw it then. So I could imagine in, you know, the early 60s, no one was thinking about the kind of effects bullying would have on individuals. Right. 
I agree. To add insult to injury, the school's new drama teacher demoted Betty from acting in the next play to a position as stage manager. Now, she cited that she didn't think Betty had much promise. Now, this is crushing because that was Betty's career path. That gave her her self-esteem, it seems, was her acting. I wonder if that was true or if she was just also punishing her. Well, that's, yeah, there's some sources that suggest this teacher just did not like Betty for whatever reason. Okay. Again, she was outspoken and most, you know, people in authority don't want to deal with someone who's outspoken. Mm -hmm. So Betty was absolutely crushed and things at home weren't going great either. Her father had found her personal diary where she'd written all about her sexual experiences. And if you recall, he was a very staunch Baptist. So finding out about what she was doing absolutely enraged him. And I would imagine she felt violated and quite embarrassed by this. So, oh, yeah, I don't know if there was physical altercations as a result, but we can just assume that, you know, things were not going great for Betty once her father found this. And that, in fact, that diary was never found. People think that he either threw it out or burned it, which I would imagine that's what he would have done because he felt that it was so shameful. He probably wanted to get rid of it. Needless to say, this was a lot for a teenager to be dealing with, and Betty was really struggling emotionally, so much so that by the winter of her senior year, she began telling several people that she no longer wanted to live. Now, it got to the point where she really would tell anyone who would listen to her. She told people about her attempts to overdose. Now, her attempts to overdose are not fully clear. I did learn that on one occasion she took, I believe, too many like painkillers. And then it just made her very ill. So I'm not sure if this was a cry for help or if she was making serious attempts. But regardless, it shouldn't matter. You know, she was clearly showing signs that she needed someone to help her. And she would talk to people about her desire to go to heaven. And unfortunately, Megan, no one took her seriously because Betty often said outrageous things to get a rise out of people. And many just thought she was acting out to get attention. Kind of just attributing, oh, there goes Betty again. Yeah, well, these uh, mental health, uh, you know, in the 1960s was not taken as seriously as it's taken today. Sometimes I forget that we've come such a long way in certain areas because we look at certain areas like our criminal justice system and think like, how are we still where we are? But there are some areas that luckily I, I would hope that today that most children in high school, if they had a friend who was threatening to harm themselves, I think most know to go for help at this point. Yeah, I think so. Even after she asked several people to assist her, she had told them that she couldn't bring herself to do it herself. Nobody believed her. So she was pretty much begging people to help her. But everyone kept kind of shooting it down. A few people even laughed saying, you know, that they just thought it was a joke. However, there was one person who took her plea for help seriously. On the morning of March 22nd, 1961, Betty's mother went to wake her up for school. But she found the door locked, which was odd because Betty didn't usually lock her bedroom door. Her mother was able to gain entry eventually. However, Betty was not in her room. Her parents immediately called the police, terribly worried about where Betty had gone. Everything had seemed to be normal the night before. Betty had come home from play rehearsal and spoke with her mother for a bit before retiring for the night. So where could she have gone? I mean, it's possible that they suspected that she ran away. You know, that whole situation with her father had just happened. So I would imagine there was embarrassment or anger from what had transpired with her father and the diary, you know, not long before this. Or fear, though. Yeah. But, you know, this is all speculation. We have no idea what her parents were thinking. You know, maybe they really were concerned that something had happened to her. Regardless, you know, an investigation started. The first thing the police did is they began questioning students at the high school, students who knew Betty and started asking questions um, to try to figure out where she may be. 
Now, investigators learned that her friend, some sources say boyfriend, but I believe this was more a friend. Her friend Ike had drove her home the previous evening from play practice. Of course, the police then questioned Ike. Now, Ike explained that he dropped Betty off at home at 10 o'clock p.m., but at her request, he came back at 10.30 to pick her up. This is when she would sneak out of her house. This was not atypical for Betty. She would often sneak out after her parents went to sleep. Off her bedroom, there was a back door in her home, and it led to an alleyway. So it was very easy for her to kind of sneak out when her parents thought she was sleeping. According to Ike, he picked her up at 10.30. They were hanging out in the alleyway when Betty's ex-boyfriend, Mac, drove up. Now, Ike says that at this point, Betty said to him, Oh my God, I didn't think he would come. She then explained to Ike that Mac had promised to kill her. Now, Ike didn't believe her. He told the cops that he assumed this was a joke and that she was just saying outlandish things. But as she exited his car to get into Mac's car, she said to Ike, I've got to call his bluff, even if he kills me. Why is Mac threatening to kill her? Yeah, good question, Megan. Stick with me. We'll get there. Okay. Now, this, of course, sounded bizarre to the police, but they needed to talk to Mac to clear this all up. Maybe he at least knew where Betty was. You know, everyone's talking now. People are assuming that she left on her own accord because she was dating an older man. So her classmates suspected that she was just likely with him. I don't think anyone suspected anything sinister. But when police questioned Mac, he told officers that he and Betty hung out for a while. And then he says he drove her home around midnight and he said he hadn't seen her since. Cops were a little bit suspicious of his story because things weren't adding up. Now, just minor things. For one, he said he dropped Betty off at her front door. But by now, they knew that she often used the back door, especially when she was sneaking in and out. They thought it was strange that if Betty was going to be sneaking out at night, why would she go back in the front door? Also, he mentioned that she was in her pajamas. So they were curious, you know, why would Mac leave her alone in her pajamas and then drive off? Because according to Mac, he kind of left her by the front door. She was about to go in and he left. So they kind of started pushing him a little more. There was an interrogation that lasted about 45 minutes and Mac eventually cracked under the pressure and a different and shocking story started to emerge. Now Mac explained that Betty had begged him to kill her and that, quote unquote, all he had done was carry out her wishes. And he said he did so with a 12-gauge shotgun that Betty herself positioned against her temple before he pulled the trigger. Whoa, this is quite a revelation. Officers didn't believe this story. I mean, would you? It kind of seems so outlandish. And even more so because Mac was so calm. When he was delivering this story, he was saying it almost matter-of-factly. So investigators really started to believe that he was just making this whole thing up. It wasn't until Mac accompanied them to a desolate dirt road about 25 miles away, telling them to stop at one point, that they realized that he may actually be telling the truth. At the stop he indicated, Mac pointed out footprints in the dirt that he claimed belonged to him and Betty. He then led them to a small pond where blood splatter and human matter was visible on the ground. Mac told police that this was where he shot Betty. He says he then tied weights to her body and put her in the water. But again, making sure to let them know that this was all done at her request. And just in case the officers were still unsure if he was making this up, Max stripped down to his underwear and entered the four feet high murky water. He went under and retrieved an object that seemed pretty heavy and then dragged it to the shore. The object was Betty's deceased body, partially decapitated by a single gunshot wound to the head, 
with two lead weights tied around her waist, just as Mac had indicated in his story. Well, first of all, okay, I know it's the 60s, but police didn't think like, hey, we probably shouldn't let him go down and, you know, touch her body and contaminate the crime scene. And yeah, (laughs) I mean, this is all shocking. It like the whole the whole situation you're telling me I'm very shocked. Yeah. Every single word I'm saying is shocking. I was trying to understand if they were trying to like call his bluff, like, oh, yeah, go get her then if she's in the water or if he just volunteered this. Like, It's so unclear how this all transpired. But okay. This is what ends up coming out of this. They have Betty's body. Now, Matt continued to tell the police the details. He said that he drove Betty to the wooded area. The two of them had sat in his Jeep chatting for a bit. He said that Betty was in great spirits and that she spoke about what heaven would be like. He says a little time passed and then they exited the car and headed to the water where Betty removed her shoes. Did they find the shoes by the water where he said they would? No, Megan, because Mac took the shoes with him and then threw them out the window on his way home that evening. Okay. Anyway, more on that later. According to Mac, she removed her shoes and then she said she was cold. So she went back to the car to get her jacket. He told police, quote, I just stood there with the gun. I said, give me a kiss to remember you by. She gave me a kiss and then said, thank you, Mac. I will always remember you for that. Then she said, now. He said this is when he raised the gun barrel up. She took a hold of it with the back of her hand and held it up to her temple. And then he pulled the trigger. He said she immediately died. Some sources said that he actually snapped his fingers and said that she died like that by snapping his fingers to describe just how fast she died. Chilling. Now, needless to say, the police were shocked. And I think one of the most upsetting parts was Mac was just completely emotionless throughout this whole process. In fact, when asked if he thought he would get caught, he replied, not this quick. Oh, so Mac was taken into custody and reporters swarmed the scene and the story began spreading like wildfire. Now, based on Mac's testimony that he had asked Betty for a kiss to remember him by, the media dubbed Betty's murder the, quote, kiss and kill murder. We talked about this in previous episodes. I absolutely despise when the media gives names to these crimes. If you recall, we covered the Savopolis and Figueroa murder on our patron feed, and everyone referred to that as the D.C. Mansion murders. We shouldn't be referring to these people as monikers. And even now, if you look up this case, you'll see a lot of coverage is still labeling it the kiss and kill murder. The townspeople were utterly shocked by Mac's arrest, mostly because they couldn't believe that Mac could ever hurt anyone. In fact, he had garnered a lot of support and sympathy from classmates and the community at large. Many people were saying things along the line of, if Mac did this, then there has to be a good reason. There's no way Mac would do this. Are you going to reveal a motive? Kind of. Okay, (laughs) good, because I'm very curious myself here. I think if you feel a bit confused about what's going on here, I don't think that's going to be cleared up for you, unfortunately. This just gets stranger. It was almost as if Mac was the victim who had fallen prey to, quote, one of Betty's schemes. People were saying things like, everyone knew that girl was no good. She must have tricked him into killing her. Some had even questioned whether she had tried to proposition Mac that night or if maybe she was pregnant. I mean, the rumors were flying and they were not in favor of Betty. Mac's family posted the $10,000 bail and Mac was released from jail while he awaited court proceedings. Just to give you an idea of, you know, the family's means, that would be almost $100,000 in today's currency. Okay. Megan, you're not going to believe this, but while Mac waited for court proceedings, he had his pick of invites to parties. He went on with his life as a popular football player, 
He would go to school. He would go continue to play football. He would be enjoying different teenage social events. Meanwhile, Betty's family was trying to pick up the pieces. And I hadn't read any reports, but I can't imagine that this didn't devastate them, their daughter's murderer going on with life as if nothing happened. The trial against Mac began on February 20th, 1962. Now, you would think that he would take a plea given that he confessed, but he didn't. His defense team had another strategy. Any idea? No. I re- you know what? For, for, I really don't know what they are pulling out. I think I'm still sitting here going, what? Yeah, you're going to be surprised. And I think it was to many people's surprise. They argued for temporary insanity. And they wanted the jurors to rule on this rather than go to trial at all. What? Now, this was a strategy that had, yeah, listen to this. This was a strategy that had never been used. And let me say that his defense attorney was considered one of the best around. As I mentioned, his family had means. The family used money to hire the best. And Megan, at the time, under Texas law, if jurors found a defendant temporarily insane, and that would be insane only when he committed the crime, then he would walk free. Now, Mac's defense attorney argued before the district court that before any trial was to take place, jurors should first have to evaluate Mac's sanity at the time he pulled the trigger. In this case, if they determined that he had been temporarily insane, then he should not have to stand trial for murder. In other words, jurors would not determine Mac's guilt or innocence. They would only render a decision as to whether or not he had been insane at the time of the crime or not. And this was occurring during a pre-trial proceeding. So, Megan, this is extremely rare, and at this time, it had actually never even been used. But there was a loophole in the law that was allowing the defense attorney to do this, or so he thought it was a loophole. Yeah, I've never heard of this before, like ever. And I'm curious what proof they're going to present that he was temporarily insane. Basically, Megan, you have this lawyer kind of taking his shot and saying, you know what, let's see if we could even, instead of even getting this to trial, let's see if the judge will grant this. And the judge granted it after a defense motion. So not surprisingly, I mean, the courthouse was full and the majority of the observers were Max supporters. Now the media, you can read, I mean, there's some, you could look at some of the old newspaper articles on microfiche and you'll see that the media would talk about how there was a lot of young girls who would go to the courthouse just to quote, ooh and ah at the handsome boy. And they were there so frequently that they were dubbed Max girls. Okay. Oh boy. Yeah. Now, Betty's parents were the only Betty supporters in attendance. And this is just so sad. She is the victim here, but somehow everyone there is supporting Mac. She didn't have any other friends or did she have siblings? She did. There, She had um, three siblings, but they I don't know if the parents just kept them away from this or what. But the media doesn't really mention the siblings being in attendance. Right. Again, doesn't mean they weren't there, but. And I don't know what their ages were either, but I do find that very sad that no one was supporting there to support her, even a friend, a teacher. I don't know. That's sad. But again, we weren't there. This is what the media is telling us. So maybe they were just focusing on Mac and not her. So they were just trying to make a, a big story about the fact that Betty had no supporters there. So who knows what really was going on? Okay. As I mentioned, there was this was a very strong defense attorney. Now, the prosecutor was only 24 years old and he had never tried a serious crime before. And so, you know, being up against a zealous defense attorney, like this starts off kind of imbalanced. Now, get this, Megan. Mac's defense attorney actually said that he thought they would prevail since, quote, insanity is the only possible explanation for this tragedy. <laughs> so, in other words, he's just saying there's no reason to think this nice boy would have done anything, so he must have been insane. Well, that's one way. That's one argument. 
And in this type of proceeding, the burden of proof fell on the defense. So it was their job to prove that Mac was insane when he pulled the trigger. So this is a little bit different than normal trial proceedings where the burden of proof is on the prosecutor. So normally the prosecution goes first. But in this type of proceeding, the defense presented first. I'm going to presume that the prosecution is going to call her friend Ike in these proceedings to establish that, you know, she was in fear for her life ahead of time. Is that going to happen? Please say yes. We'll get there, Megan. Let's talk about the defense first. All right. So hold on to that. The first person called to the stand was Mac's father, O.H. Herring. He told the jury that on the day of his son's arrest, Mac had handed him a letter that Betty had written, which he believed proved that Betty was the only one who could be blamed for her death, stating, you might say she has become a witness for the defense. Now, if that's not disrespectful and disgusting, I don't know what is. So the letter essentially said, this is not Mac's fault and he should not be held accountable. Now, I don't know if this letter was real or not. They did have a handwriting expert for the defense who authenticated the letter, saying it was, in fact, written by Betty. I'm not sure if the prosecution refuted this, but I also don't think it's relevant. Even if she were to write this letter, if Mac does anything to me, it's not my fault. That doesn't mean it's someone murdered you. Like if you're murdered, I mean, sorry, I don't even know how to say this. It's so absurd. So uh, so basically the defense was saying this is Betty's fault and we have a letter to prove it because in her own words, she's saying this isn't Mac's fault. And this is what Betty's parents in the courtroom. And they had to sit there. What a double victimization. This story is very frustrating. I hope you're going to get, I hope it gets, there's some point at which this is going to turn around. No, it gets more frustrating. Sorry. There are almost a dozen character witnesses who spoke on Mac's behalf. Many of them concurring that Mac must have been temporarily insane at the time of the crime. There was simply just no other explanation for his behavior. Right. There could be no other motive, right? There could be no other reason why this seemingly sweet, popular guy would harm someone. And a few students also testified for the defense, saying that Betty had asked them to kill her. Again, why is this relevant? Even if someone asks you to kill them, it is not okay to kill them. Some might say, oh, maybe this is like a mercy killing. Like, but this is not anything of the sort. Even if you argued it was assisted suicide, assisted suicide wasn't legal. So, right? I mean, there's still no argument for this. So you're absolutely right. Let me just quickly talk a little bit about the difference between euthanasia and assisted suicide, just because there's a small distinction. But you're right. Even if any of these more contemporary laws were on the books, it still wouldn't even fall under them. So euthanasia is when you actively take steps to assist the ending of one's life. It's like if a doctor causes the death of someone when they wanted to die. Not okay. That's euthanasia. That's known as a mercy killing. That's Dr. Kevorkian. Yep. But then there's assisted suicide, which is actually now legal in 10 jurisdictions. Have you heard of like death with dignity? There's these new laws now. You'll see them in like Oregon, Washington, Colorado. Um, We have it in New Jersey. We have some version of it also. This is when a doctor assists an individual if requested. So it's helping somebody end their own life. And of course, this is somebody who is suffering from an incurable, painful disease in which there's no other option. Right. So clearly, there's nothing in this case that even remotely fits into any of those baskets. So, Megan, I'm not going to get into it too much because another case that I'm currently writing right now has to do with assisted suicide. And I'll be exploring a lot of these issues in that episode. 
Okay. So many say that the most compelling testimony came from a psychiatrist who had examined Mac three days after the murder. And he said that Mac was, quote, dethroned of his reasoning by Betty's pleadings and had been temporarily insane when he put the shock onto her head. Quote, he became so mixed up and so sick that he felt that pulling the trigger was what he should do for her. He was deprived of the power of applying logic. And he says, however, though, the effects of this gross stress reaction were temporary. He can be trusted to lead a normal life. (laughs) So the defense found a psychiatrist that said he was insane for that small window of time, but he's okay now. He's not going to harm anyone if we let him go. Right. I mean, you can always find an expert to support your point of view, too. We've talked about that in uh, Mm -hmm. previous episodes. And I just want to remind everyone where we're situated here. You know, it's 1961, a segregated Texas small town where, you know, girls having sex is seen as a massive character flaw. Mac was this, you know, white, handsome star football player. And no one really gave much care to mental health or issues surrounding bullying. So we'll, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about this in the discussion. But I just want to keep reminding listeners, you know, it's a long time ago from now. Regardless, this is infuriating. Now, the prosecution did not present a strong case. And again, I think it's absurd that they even had to present a case at all. All of the evidence points to premeditated murder. And to me, that's case closed. The prosecution tried to show that Mac was jealous because Betty had hooked up with one of his friends. But Megan, this backfired because on the stand, this friend said that Mac wasn't mad at all. And, you know, the two of them didn't even argue over her. And he said, actually, I didn't even do anything with Betty. Everything's turned on its head now. That blows motive out of the water, too, a little bit. I mean, yep. The prosecution's not doing well here. Then in a shocking move, the defense called Mac to the stand. You know, we know that that's rare, but even more unheard of, they didn't even do a direct examination. They went straight to the prosecution cross. Let me just say this again. The defense called their client as a witness to defend himself. They didn't ask him any questions, threw him straight to the prosecution. Wait, 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 wait. They defend. <laughs> how how can the defense can't call? Would they have to ask him something? Would they ask him his name or something? I mean. Yep, they rested. They just pretty much. Maybe you're you're right. As a formality, they probably asked him his name and then rested. Right. So in his cross-examination, the prosecution pressed Mac to explain at what moment exactly had he decided to kill Betty. His response was, quote, I don't know. I can't remember. I can't explain. He said he had difficulty understanding it all himself. He says, I have stayed awake at night trying to think so I could explain it to other people. Sometimes now I think it was a dream. Sometimes I think it was real. Sometimes I think I am watching someone else. That sounds like a classic textbook thing you would read about what temporary insanity might, you know, what what people might envision. Exactly. He continued by stating that Betty had talked about heaven a lot and made it appear that heaven was a place you could reach out and touch. He explained that on the night he killed her, he had believed he was doing the right thing. And he told the jury, I know that everything about it was wrong. So this is confusing to me because he's saying at the time he thought it was right, but he's also claiming he was insane at the time. So he didn't know the difference between right and wrong. So it's a big contradiction. Um, I, it confuses me. Sorry. If you're if you're saying you were insane at the time, you're saying you didn't know the difference between right and wrong. Correct. Well, not necessarily, because remember, insanity can also mean, you know, the difference between right and wrong, but you can't conform your behavior. So it doesn't mean that that's why I think I was confused. Okay. You might have been able to understand, you know, right from wrong. But couldn't but... control it. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. But it still sounds 
like a contradiction to me. I understand your explanation makes sense. Yeah. But after 11 hours of deliberation, the jury determined that Mac had, in fact, been temporarily insane on the night of the murder. You know what? This is a finding because they didn't like her and they liked him. That I mean, this is not a finding that has seems like it has much to do with the facts of the case. Now, the state appealed the verdict to the Texas Supreme Court. At first, it took me a little while to understand why the state could appeal a verdict, but it's not that they were appealing the not guilty verdicts. They can't just disagree with a jury. They were appealing on the grounds that the judge did not have the authority to grant a hearing that only evaluated Mac's sanity at the time of the crime. Right. In other words, the judge's job is to evaluate Mac's competency to stand trial. And whether or not he was insane at the time of the murder is a totally separate matter. So just for people that might be confused by this, because I myself was confused by this, essentially what happened was the judge in the pretrial proceedings said that it was okay for the jury to rule on competency. But in fact, that's not the jury's job. The jury's job is to determine whether or not Mac was insane at the time of the murder. And that is a separate matter than competency to stand trial. So on June 27th, 1962, the court sided with the prosecution and they vacated the judgment and they ordered a new trial. This is great news. I'm like shouting inside. Yes. OK, I'm eager to see what happens. But this is good. Obviously, they found, you know, they, they, this was totally inappropriate. So and this is a real trial now. This is not just a pre-trial proceeding and Max facing the death penalty here. Ooh. OK, got it. And there was intense publicity. So the second trial was moved. It was moved nearly 600 miles away. OK to another part of Texas, but I really don't think it mattered. I mean, the media had trailed this case all over the state and everybody knew about it. Right. So is the narrative the same at this trial? Like, is anything different in trial two in terms of the narrative? That's a good question. So the defense kept their narrative from the first trial and the prosecutor, unfortunately, they failed to establish a motive yet again. So in this trial, shockingly, the jury sided with the defense uh. yet again. Mac found not guilty by reason of insanity. And might I just mention, there were only two women on the jury. Right. Okay. Yep. Yep. That, that makes sense. I mean, I'm glad I got a second trial. I think the problem that we've talked about before is even though the prosecutor doesn't need a motive, people want to know, why would, he why would an otherwise seemingly normal guy have done this? And without that, they can't connect it. I don't know why the prosecution didn't dig in a little more. We'll talk about this when we talk about theories, but okay. it seems as if, you know, they couldn't establish this jealousy motive and they just kind of stopped looking. It seemed yeah. again, you know, we only know what we know from the materials we have. So I don't know what the prosecution was working with, but, you know, once again, the media, they seem to paint Mac, not Betty as the victim. And overall, the community supported Mac. And nobody saw Betty as a victim of murder. I mean, for example, like one of the headlines I saw on the microfiche newspaper said, Blast of Shotgun Kills Odessa Girl. No, Odessa Girl was murdered. <laughs> you know, like it's just if you look at the language yeah. that the media used, it was just so clear that she was not being seen as a murder victim. This is such a tragedy all around. It really is. I mean, the community was supportive of Max so much so that he stayed in the same town after the trial, and he also attended a college nearby. And after he graduated high school, he stayed in Odessa. And in fact, I don't believe he ever left the town. 
You're kidding me. And how many cases can you have someone who was put on trial for a potential murder that can still stay in that town and not be faced with any scrutiny? He thrived, it seemed. So you're saying he had a good life afterwards? So, you know, he did stay in the town. He went on to live a quiet life. There was no known trouble with the law. He got married and divorced twice. He worked many jobs. It sounds like he didn't really have much stability. He was a carpenter at one point, then a welder, then an electrician. As I mentioned, you know, he had two marriages, so he may have struggled a little bit. There's not much known about him. The last time we saw his name in the news is when he passed away at the age of 75 in January of 2019. And when this was reported, it was still reported as, you know, Mac Herring from the kiss and kill murders. That moniker stuck around. Was there anything done, I, I don't know, to honor Betty, to memorialize her? You know, is there any legacy here? Unfortunately, the only legacy you really see is that students that attend the high school that Betty went to, there's this idea that she roams the hall sometimes, you know, like ghost sightings. So no, I don't believe so. Luckily, she did have one family member who kept her memory alive. Her cousin, whom she was very close with, Shelton Williams, in 2004, he published a biography about his cousin. It's called Washed in Blood. And in that book, he details Betty's life, shedding some light on who Betty was, and what this tragedy did to his family and how it affected everyone. And you get more of a sense for, you know, the life that was lost so tragically early when Betty was murdered, because that's exactly what I believe that it was, Megan. And yeah, so that's kind of where this story ends. There's a certain irony here. I don't know if you've noticed it, but when you discussed Betty, she was a total kind of progressive for her time. Yet, in fact, it was a, just a throwback to, you know, much, much harsher times. And so I'm sitting here thinking, wow, sometimes I think we haven't made as much progress as we have. But when you hear this story, you see how far we've actually come. It's a shame only that Betty didn't get to witness that. Yeah. And it's so sad because she was clearly the victim. She is the main victim in this story. And those around her failed to take her cries for help seriously. Yeah. If we're talking about what she endured in modern terms, she experienced pretty heavy bullying from her peers. She was ostracized and she was punished for really being who she was. Really, those around her, quite frankly, treated her like garbage. Yeah. Again, it is a different time. And as you mentioned, I do think today that the way she spoke about wanting to harm herself would be taken more seriously. And yeah. I would hope that, you know, the bullying wouldn't have occurred. But either way, you know, we, we do need to analyze this a little bit. I mean, I think it's very clear that she was murdered in cold blood and it was premeditated. I mean, Mac initially lied to the police. So clearly he knew what he did was wrong. He got rid of her shoes, as I mentioned. He took the gun with him to go meet her, along with the weights that were used to tie her down. Zero remorse, zero accountability. I mean, this seems like an open and closed shut case for murder in the first degree. I think it is, too. I think it's hard to know his motivation. Like, you know, you, we usually talk about what was driving him. But if I had to guess, you had said they had a breakup that was his decision. I, if I had to guess, I bet he broke up with her for kind of show, but still wanted to keep her and was resentful that she went on to date and see other people. Just if I had to venture a guess, that's what it would be. And that's interesting because that's similar to my theory, which is it's not really a theory, but it's more just like food for thought. Like, how do we even know how Betty felt? Isn't it possible 
that we have the story all wrong and maybe Betty broke up with Mac and he got angry. We have this narrative that Betty was madly in love with Mac and he broke her heart. And But Sheldon talks about in his book that, oh, no, no, actually, Betty was in love with Mac's friend, according to Sheldon. So there's, you know, there's a whole other possible scenario in which he actually killed Betty, whether or not she wanted to harm herself, regardless of any of that. He may have just murdered her because he felt like he was being rejected. So it seems like either way, you know, kind of rejection, jealousy, it's tied in. But that's interesting to note. Also, I think the reason that, you know, when we talk about theory, the reason that Betty was discounted is, I mean, this is clear labeling theory, right? She was labeled a hysterical woman with mental health issues. So she was not to be believed. And yet Mac was labeled this great guy. And so, of course, we're going to believe him. That explains how this awful outcome, I think, in the legal system occurred to me. I agree. I would ask you if there's any theories to help us understand why Mac did what he did, although we don't really know. Yeah. So it's hard to even say because let's assume for a minute that Mac's story is true. And the only reason why he harmed Betty is because he was doing her a favor. What kind of theory could even help us understand that if that were the case? Appeal to higher loyalty which is a technique of neutralization in which someone, you know, knows that an act is wrong, but they do it anyway because of their loyalty to a person. I thought the same thing. If there had to be, let's say that, you know, he did murder Betty because he thought he was helping her. I too thought, well, I guess techniques of neutralization. However, I mean, they just, they dated for only a month or two. They were just a little bit of friend. Like there's no loyalty. It, it just seems like an excuse. And that's it. I think he... I think he just murdered Betty. We'll never know exactly the motivation for why he did what he did. What we do know is that he got away with murder. I mean, that's my clear opinion. Mac got away with murder and Betty was clearly a young woman who was struggling and nobody helped her. And all the adults in her life failed her. I'd also like to point out, while I'm not a huge, you know, while I do believe that our criminal justice system is substantially, severely flawed, I don't think he'd be able to pull off temporary insanity today by our standards by in any way. So I'd be grateful that the maybe the courts have evolved in that way. That's a good point. And I definitely agree with that. We know that's very rarely used and even more rarely successful. So I would agree that I see zero evidence of temporary insanity. And I think the courts today would see through his defense. The silver lining there. Yeah. And before we end today, I just want to remind everyone, it's always better to overreact than to miss the chance to save someone's life. Yeah, I agree. Because in my, you know, in my researching this case, I've I've heard different sentiments about, well, maybe people didn't want to call attention to it because they'd feel silly because Betty was being hysterical. Like I'd rather, I'd much rather err on the side of caution. Mm -hmm. So if you or anyone you know is struggling, there's always places to turn for help. And as always, we have some resources listed in our show notes. There's just one I want to mention here. While researching this case, I came across a resource that I wasn't aware of. You could call or text 988 anytime, 24-7, and it's a suicide and crisis lifeline. And that could be dialed from any computer, iPad, phone, payphone, anywhere. I think that's a good resource that everyone should have. It's very easy to remember, 988. You or anyone you know needs any help. 
Thank you so much, Amy, for bringing us this episode today. I must admit it was kind of infuriating, but nevertheless, I'm glad that I know the story now. And you know what? If Betty's story ended there, maybe it doesn't end by sharing it, you know, that we're mm-hmm. sharing it and, and keeping people informed. Yeah, thank you all so much for listening. Thank you again to Alyssa for suggesting this case. And we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash women in crime. Sources for today include Medium, Texas Monthly, New York Daily News, San Antonio Express, and State vs. Olson. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.